Thanks so much. Good evening. If you go to um, our website, localchurchapologetics.org, you can actually download for free the memorization cards that go with all these sessions that we're covering. So like the six scientific flaws of evolution, the eight levels of evidence of a creator. Tonight we're going to go over eight areas of evidence that the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, all of those memorization cards are available. You can download them, print them out, and then uh, memorize the main points so that you can utilize them in your life in a better way. And of course, they're all covered in the book as well, Faith and Reason Made Simple. So, well, let's pray, and we'll, get, we'll jump right into things tonight. Father, thank you for this night. Thank you, Lord, for just this, this season of time that we're able to spend together. I pray that our, our faith will be strengthened. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'll be our teacher. I pray that tonight we'll gain a, a, just a greater appreciation for the Bible, your Word. And help us tonight, Lord, I pray, to be able to, to take things and, and, and have them ingrained upon our hearts so that we can be better uh, tools in your hands as witnesses for you in this culture that we live in, especially within our families, God, and within our workplaces and schools and our neighborhoods. So we commit all this into your hands, Holy Spirit, and pray that you would minister to us tonight in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. Well, this is part four. Uh, it, it's normally part three, but we took two weeks on part two about the evidence of a creator. So um, this is where we're going to get into a whole different area and talk about the Bible, the anchor of our faith. And in, in the same way that our culture attacks the very idea that we're created by a personal God and says that, no, we've evolved, there are many that attack the Word of God and say that the Bible is not the Word of God, but it's just uh, myths and fairy tales and fables and uh, the words of men. We're going to look at the, the, this is in a, kind of a progression. I believe that, uh, as we saw before, God has said that He's revealed Himself in a general way to us just through the things He's made so that we are without excuse. Nobody has an excuse to not believe in God even if they've never read a Bible or heard of Jesus, we all have the witness that there is a God who created us. Romans 1.20 tells us that's general revelation. God has revealed himself in a general way, uh, or you could call it natural revelation as well. But now we're going to move into the two areas of special revelation, that where God has revealed more details of who he is and what his plans are for us. And that's through the Bible and then the person of Jesus, who was God in the flesh, come and dwelt among us. So we, through these areas of special revelation, the Bible and the person of Jesus, uh, we have a deeper understanding of God and his plan for our lives. The Bible tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. And that word inspired simply means God-breathed. And so this is one of the, the claims of Scripture, that Scripture is the words of God, not just the words of men. That uh, another Scripture talks about all the prophets of the Old Testament wrote as they were inspired by the Spirit of God. Also, Jesus said this, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. 
And uh, we live in a culture that says there really isn't such a thing as truth, that all truth is, is uh, relative, and it just uh, your truth is uh, just as val- valid as my truth and somebody else's truth, and, but they may all be different. The Bible declares there is truth, and it's found in the person of Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and in his word, the Bible, which is truth. Um, but we have this kind of thing happening in our culture. This gentleman says, I've often thought the Bible should have a disclaimer in the front saying, this is fiction. And that's consistent with what's happening on much of our college campuses. In 2006, a study was done that showed that only 6% of college professors said that the Bible is the actual Word of God, while 51% described it as an ancient book of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts. So that's what our young people are running into, and we need to be able, even if we're a little bit older, We have kids and grandkids who need to have somebody they can turn to and say, Grandpa, why do we believe the Bible is the Word of God? I'm running into some teachers that say it isn't the Word of God, and we need to have some answers for that, and I hope to help you with that tonight. We're going to talk about these eight areas of evidence. Now, by the way, this is not just like it would have been true in our past weeks, I I by no means make the claim that this is the all-in-all of evidence in this area. There there are people could focus in especially on one or two areas of this and go much deeper than we're going to. And there's other things that we could point to. So it's not the all-in-all, but this definitely will give you something to hold on to. And I've tried to put it, kind of bring uh, uh, things from many different sources together and put them Uh, in in a container, so to speak, that we can grab hold of and understand and remember. So eight areas of evidence, internal unity, bibliographical evidence, archaeology and history, medical facts, scientific facts that are found in the Bible, uh, fulfilled prophecy, and that's a big one, and we actually break that down into uh, fulfilled prophecies of ancient cities, world empires, messianic prophecies, the Jews returning to Israel, the end times in the city of Jerusalem. We'll look at all of those areas. And then changed lives and the indestructibility and distribution of Scripture. So these are the eight things we're going to look at. We'll spend a lot more time on some than others. This first one we're going to spend quite a bit of time on, the internal unity of the Bible. Now, I love studying this because, for one thing, it's not just evidence to defend your faith. It's just, it makes you love the Bible more. The Bible is awesome, and we're going to see that as we look through this. The Bible is written by 40 different authors over, uh, of the 66 books, over a 1,500-year period, written on three different continents in three different languages, and there's a 400-year gap between the Old Testament and New Testament. There's shepherds, kings, scholars, fishermen, prophets, a military general, a cupbearer, and a priest, all penned portions of the Scripture. Now, if you just looked at that, you'd say, and you didn't know anything else about the Bible, you'd say, well, this thing probably doesn't make any sense. I mean, written over 1,500 years, on three different continents and three different languages by 40 different people? How could it possibly 
have a, a unified message, and yet we find that it does. It's an unfolding story of redemption from Genesis all the way through Revelation. We see the Old Testament and New Testament linked together in some marvelous ways. Let me give you a few examples. The Old Testament emphasizes the law, especially the first five books are called the law or the Torah or the Pentateuch. And so there's all this emphasis on the law of God, and then when you get to the New Testament, we are told what the law is for, that the law was never designed to save us, but it was designed to be a tutor, a, a schoolmaster, a teacher to lead us to Christ. How does it do that? It's because it shows us our desperate need for a Savior, because when you really begin to study the law of the Old Testament, you realize you could never perfectly keep the law. And that's what God planned for us to be able to see. We cannot be righteous in our own self. We realize, I'm undone. I'm, I'm in trouble. I need help. So the law leads us to the New Testament fulfillment of God's answer that's, that's shown in various ways in the Old Testament, but really revealed in full in the New Testament. So there's a great connection there. Think of this, uh, the Melchizedek. All of you familiar with Melchizedek, that name? Well, when you go to the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 14, there's three verses that talk about Melchizedek. Abraham, who's called Abram still at the time, gets involved in this battle, and he wins, and he's got the spoils of battle. He, he gets involved to protect his nephew Lot, it appears, and as he wins this, this victory, all of a sudden, we see this, this person, Melchizedek, come on the scene. He's a priest unto God, the, called the priest of Salem, which means the priest of, 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 of peace, the prince of peace. And um, we don't hear much about him at this point. He just kind of shows up. He, he blesses Abraham. Abraham pays tithes to him. He brings out wine and bread. That's kind of interesting. Three verses, and then he's gone. Don't hear anything more about him until Psalm 110, verse 4. One more verse in the Old Testament. Psalm 110 is a messianic prophecy. And in that prophecy, there's these words, you shall be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So four verses, three of them written 1,500 years before Christ, one of them written 1,000 years before Christ, and we could read the whole Old Testament and say, well, now, why is that even in there? And then you get to the New Testament, and you go to the book of Hebrews, and you realize that the whole book of Hebrews is committed to comparing the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and a major portion of that is the priest who is overseeing the New Covenant, Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest. And we find in chapter 5, we're told he's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 6, it says again he's a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7, it describes in detail things about Melchizedek and says again Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then it says 
Jesus is a priest forever, therefore he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. If you don't have three verses written 1,500 years before Christ in the book of Genesis chapter 14 and one verse in Psalm 110 verse 4 written 1,000 years before Christ, a major New Testament doctrine disappears that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. The Bible... You see, guys didn't get together and scheme to do that. They had no way of knowing when they wrote those things in the Old Testament it would be critical for the New Testament. Abraham, his whole life is a life of faith, and yet faith is really not a major thing of the Old Testament except for this major person who lived by faith, and then when we come to the New Testament, he is the example of New Testament Christianity of the person living by faith. And there's this connection, Old Testament and New Testament again. And then there's Abraham offering Isaac. You know the story. He waited for so many years for Isaac, his promised son, and then God says, I want you to sacrifice him. And he says to Abraham, he says, I want you to go to the hills of Moriah, and then I'll show you the place. So he goes to the region where the hills of Moriah are, and that are the hills that surround the city of Jerusalem. And we don't know for sure about this, but I believe with all my heart that when then God said, and he got there, and God said, it's that hill, that one right over there, I want you to sacrifice Isaac there, that would become the place where, that the Lord will provide, it's called, that that became the place that about 1,500 years later, Jesus Christ would die upon a cross. God made a covenant with Abraham and found a man willing to give his son to God, and God said, through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. His seed would be Christ, the Son of God, who would be given on that very place. Wonderful connection, Old Testament and New Testament. Amazing things that are not explained in natural terms, but certainly are in terms of inspiration from God. Even the connection of the Old Testament and New Testament with this 400-year gap. The Old Testament ends with these words about that Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord, which we find out later Jesus specifically says John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that. And we see that all four Gospels begin either with the genealogy of Jesus and then go into this or directly with this, of the ministry of John the Baptist, the fulfillment of the end of the Old Testament. What a connection. The Bible claims to be the Word of God throughout. 2,600 times God said, or its equivalent, are found throughout the Scripture. And then there's these claims of sincerity and inspiration by the writers, where they specifically say that we're telling you the truth and that where these things are real, like Luke 1, he says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And notice the, the verbiage there. 
He's saying it's in the exact truth. Uh, I've investigated carefully. I'm writing these things out in a, in a consecutive order. And uh, it, it, these are things that were handed down by eyewitnesses. Everything about this indicates Luke is saying clearly, I want you to know these are truthful things that I'm reporting. Paul says this in Acts chapter 26, I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it, is not done, it was not done in a corner. He says this is stuff everybody knows about. The world at that time had lots of eyewitnesses. He says, I'm talking to you about things people are well aware of. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, for the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up Greed, God is our witness. He says, we're not serving men, we're serving God. We've got to get this right. We're accountable to God, and we're not trying to trick you. We're not presenting error. We're giving you truth. Now, here's another witness of this, this whole internal unity, these internal things that point to the reality of the Bible, the embarrassing testimony. Now, think about it. If you're going to make up a religion the stars are going to look good, aren't they? Matter of fact, if you're one of the authors and you're one of the stars, you're going to make sure what you write about yourself is going to be good. But when we read the Bible, the stars, all of their flaws are shown to us. Matter of fact, the Bible goes out of its way to show us the, the flaws of the key people of Scripture. Everything from Adam and Eve's sin Cain murders Abel. Noah gets drunk. Abraham's lying about his wife being his sister. Jacob's deception of his brother. Joseph's brother selling him into slavery. Judah ends up having sexual relationships with his former daughter-in-law who poses as a prostitute, and that's part of the genealogy of Jesus. Moses gets angry and strikes things he's not supposed to be striking. Israel, the nations in rebellion against God. Samson lusts after women. Eli's and, and Samuel's son both are messed up. David, wow, a man after God's own heart, and yet there it is right in the Bible. He lusts after his neighbor's wife. He has sex with her. She gets pregnant. He tries to cover it up, ends up killing her husband, having him murdered. All that's in the Bible. Peter says, I'll never deny you, Jesus. But he does. And he curses and swears and all of these things. He's rebuked by Jesus in one place. The, the disciples are constantly asking, <clears throat> who's the greatest among us? I think I'm better than you are, don't you think? No, I'm much better than you are. Can you believe they're talking about that stuff? I mean, we, we at least cover it up. 
<laughs> if we think it in our heart, we, we've learned not to talk. I mean, it's right there in the Bible. The disciples of Jesus are arguing about this kind of thing. And so we have all this embarrassing testimony. Now, somebody might say, what is the, why is that important? Again, if you're making up a story and a religion, you would never put any of this stuff in the Bible. But it is just truth. It's what happened. It's history. Now also, when we look at the unity of the Bible, we see that Jesus Christ is the central character of the entire Bible. We're going to talk more about this next week, so I'm not going to deal with it in detail. I actually do a, a, one whole sermon on just this called Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. So we'll touch on quite a bit of it next week. But there's all these typologies, these things that happen that are amazing shadows and types foreshadowing the coming Messiah throughout the Scripture. Let me give you one example. You remember the water from the rock. This picture is a picture from Saudi Arabia. They, they believe that may very well be the rock that water flowed from. There's, there's physical evidences around there that great amount of water came forth over those, that rocky hill at one point in history. So in Exodus 17, they come to this area. They're thirsty. They're complaining. Moses goes to God. He says, what shall I do? He says, strike the rock. He strikes the rock. Water comes forth, enough to, to take care of a couple million people. Well, in Numbers chapter 20, they come back again. They, you know, they're in the wilderness 40 years. So we have a record of another incident. Basically, the same thing happens. Moses goes to God this time, and God doesn't say strike the rock. He says, I want you to speak to the rock. Well, Moses gets upset, though. He's not listening very clearly. He's so fed up with everybody whining and complaining all the time. He gets angry. He strikes the rock again. Water does come, and then God says, you shouldn't have done that. You're not going to be able to go into the promised land because of that. And we would ask, why would God get so frustrated with a guy going through all this stuff over one little mistake, he strikes the rock instead of speaks to the rock. Doesn't make sense until you read the New Testament. All drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. The rock was Christ. And let me ask you, how many times has the rock been stricken for our salvation? Once. And what do we do now? to receive life from him. We speak to him. There's all kinds of stuff like this throughout the Bible that the Old Testament is pointing our attention to the coming Messiah, as well as 300 Old Testament prophecies. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So there's this unity, Old Testament pointing to the main character of the New Testament. So internal unity is, and all these other things that are kind of internal evidences that uh, uh, point to the reality of the Bible being the Word of God. Now, the second one, I, I maybe should put this in a different spot because it kind of deals with a whole different thing. It's not so much dealing with the Bible showing us to be the Word of God, but this more is, is answering the critics who say, well, if the original Bible was the Word of God, certainly the Bible you read today isn't, it can't be trusted. Well, the way we test ancient writings 
to see if the copies are valid is, is through manuscript evidence. And in doing so, really the, the, the smaller this number is, the better, and the bigger this number is, the better. And here's all these other ancient writings, many of them referred to in universities and colleges, and they're never questioned the validity of the copies that we have. And yet, look at the time span between the oldest copy that we have and the original. Uh, this one, Homer's Iliad, is a little better, 500 years. And the numbers of copies that we have are very minimal. Again, Homer's Iliad is way above these. But here's the one ancient manuscript or, or writing that universities question all the time and say you can't trust it. Look how many how close we are, the oldest copy to the original, and the number of copies, it blows out of the water all other ancient writings, showing us that there is reason to trust our Bibles today. Sir Frederick Kenyon said this, the interval between the dates of the original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be, in fact, negligible. And the last foundation of any doubt that the Scriptures have come down substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. And this is really interesting, too. Try to remember this one. In addition to the manuscripts that we have, we have another evidence that no other ancient writing has anything like this. We have the writings of the early church fathers, and they quoted the New Testament over a million times in their writings, so that if we didn't have any copies, we could reconstruct basically the entire New Testament from the writings of the early church fathers and validate the fact of what the Bible actually said when it was originally written. No other ancient writing has these evidences. Let's think of, for a moment about the Old Testament. And this, I have the privilege of having firsthand knowledge of this. One of the things that I do is put together truth conferences, and Josh McDowell typically is our keynote speaker. Josh owns a 700-year-old Torah scroll, and he brings it to our conferences and lays it out for people to see. It's amazing. And what I've learned through that, his scroll is from about the mid-1400s. It's, it's weird to just have something in front of you that's that old. So this is before the, the printing press came about right after this. So when you look at this, he tells about there was 4,000 scribal rules that the scribes had to abide by when they were making a copy of the Old Testament. They were extremely meticulous. Now, you can see in this picture, I've seen it in person, but look at it. It looks like it was on a typewriter, doesn't it, or a computer. But this is handwritten. But they were so precise and meticulous that you can look at the columns, and it looks like something done on a computer. They numbered the... They knew how many words, like in a Torah scroll, that would be Genesis through Deuteronomy these five books of the Bible, they knew exactly how many words there were and how many letters there were, and when they got all done making a copy, they would then number, count the numbers and the letters, and if the middle word and the middle letter wasn't the right one, 
they had to throw the whole thing away. As a matter of fact, too, when they're writing, if they made a mistake with their pen, and as you look on Josh's Torah scroll, you can see a few places where the ink must have ran and they had to carefully scratch it off there and, and redo it, make sure they got it right. But if they were writing the name of God and the ink ran a little bit, had to throw it away. Can you imagine being a year and nine months into a two-year project and one day you're writing the name of God and the ink runs and you know that that means you got to start over. There is no book in the world that's been cared for anything like the Bible. It's totally unique, totally unique. It's no support. You know why it's attacked so much? In spite of these kinds of things, it's because Satan hates the Bible and inspires people to attack it. Mistakes often meant starting over. Now you got, let me just deal briefly with this kind of thing. Um, Bart Ehrman is a famous author who basically says you can't trust the Bible. And he says that there's about 200 to 400,000 variants within the manuscripts of the New Testament. How could we possibly trust something with that many variants? That sounds very convincing. It confuses a lot of young people who read that. But when you begin to dig into it, you find this. First of all, 80% of those are spelling variations. If one letter of one manuscript is different in a word than another, that's a variation. Or if they just spelled, like we could spell Savior two different ways, that'd be a variant every time it shows up. And then 19% of those variations are different synonyms or sentence structures saying the exact same thing. Only 1% of the variants affect in any way the meaning to some degree and have a decent chance of going back to the original. Now, here's the other thing to understand about that, though. He uses this number to make it sound so extreme. But it's because we have so many copies 57 copies of the Greek, 5,700 copies of the Greek New Testament manuscripts. 60 of them are complete New Testaments. Somewhere, we don't, nobody would know the exact number, but somewhere between, it gives you opportunity for like over 20 million possible variants because there's so many manuscripts. And every time there's any little difference in a copy, it's a variant. And so, it's very misleading what he's saying to people. We need to understand these things. So if a young person ever comes to us and says, hey, I, you know, I've heard there's all kinds of variants between these manuscripts. What's the deal with that if the Bible is truly reliable? The Dead Sea Scrolls points to the reliability of Scripture. Um, they date from 200 B.C. to 70, uh, 68 A.D., there's about 40,000 fragments of those. More than 500 books have been reconstructed. They were, they were way older than any Old Testament manuscript copies that we had before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And they found them, comparing them to a thousand-year uh, differing manuscripts. These are a thousand years older than what we had, and they're 99.5% the same. 
As, for example, of the 166 words in Isaiah 53, there are only 17 letters in question. Ten of those letters are simply a matter of spelling. Four more letters are a minor stylistic change. And then the remaining letters comprise the word light, which is added in verse 11 and does not affect the meaning. So in other words, in one chapter of 166 words, there's only one word, three letters in question after a thousand years of copying. So it's revealed to us how dependable the Bible is. All right, let's move on to number three, archaeology and history. Because you see, there's a lot of people, places, and events in Scripture, and they can be verified through archaeological finds and other historical documents. And as a matter of fact, Nelson Gluck was a famous archaeologist, and he said, as a matter of fact, however, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Another quote from James Mann in U.S. News and World Report. A wave of archaeological discoveries is altering old ideas about the roots of Christianity and Judaism and affirming the Bible is more historically accurate than many scholars thought. And then, for example, I already showed you a little bit of Luke, how he wrote and he, he, uh, how meticulous he was. Here's an example. Notice the historical reference points as he writes, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturie and Traconitus, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he came into all the district around the Jordan. Now, notice all of those historical figures, many of them now, through archaeological finds, they've found fragments of different things that have these names written on them. Uh, that one, uh, Lysanias, uh, the Tetrarch of Abilene, was in great question. Many critics said, look at there, that's not historical. But since then, archaeology has shown it to be true. He, Luke writes in the book of Acts and the book of Luke, of 32 countries, 54 cities, nine islands, numerous ports, names and titles of priests and political leaders, deities that certain cities worshipped, weather patterns, particular shipping lanes, laws and customs, all kinds of things that are historical data. And archaeology and other historical books have now more than 80 details have been confirmed the more we find in archaeology, the more it confirms the Bible to be the Word of God. Number four, medical facts. Well, what would, why would that be important? Well, there's a number of things modern medicine is discovering, obviously, things that nobody knew about until modern medicine says, hey, we, we've, dis we've discovered things. Here's an example, the danger of germs. Leviticus knew about it 3,500 years ago. Matter of fact, we get, we go, it drives us crazy trying to read Leviticus sometimes because it's like, you know, if you touch a dead body, you've got to be unclean for seven days and this and this and this and this. All these things about germs, it's like they were germ crazy. Well, and it came from God. He gave them this law. But nobody else knew about germs. As a matter of fact, 
300 years ago, a doctor would have dealt with a dead cadaver and then went over and delivered a baby without washing his hands. But not anymore, because we've learned the danger of germs, which the Bible talked about in great detail 3,500 years ago. Life is in the blood, Leviticus 17, 14. Medicine didn't understand that. Doctors didn't understand it. In the day of George Washington, you can read the accounts, historical accounts of his death. He got a blood infection, and they did something that was a common practice in that day, trying to save his life. I think it's either three times or four times in the last 48 hours of his life, they drained blood off of him, trying to get rid of the infection, and basically killed him. We know now life is in the blood. The Bible said it. 3,500 years ago. I love this one. The Bible says in Leviticus, every time you circumcise a male, when you have a male child, you circumcise him on the eighth day of his life. That's pretty specific. In 1939, research gave us more information about the whole thing about blood clotting. We found that vitamin K and prothrombin are key to blood clotting. And they discovered that when a person is born, every human being is born, they're deficient in vitamin K. And their body doesn't start producing vitamin K until about day three. But then it does a really good job of producing vitamin K, and it peaks and then drops off and stays level the rest of your life. You know where it peaks? Day eight. The best day of your entire life for blood clotting is day eight. And 3,500 years ago, the Bible said, circumcise those boys on the eighth day of their life. Scientific facts, same type of deal here. Modern science is discovering things that were in the Bible many, many years ago. The earth is a sphere. I, uh, despite the flat earth thing that's going on nowadays, we won't get into that. I can't believe that that's emerging again. But Isaiah 40 says the earth is a spear. The earth hangs on nothing, Job 26. The heavens of the universe are being stretched out. That's found 10 places in the Old Testament. There are springs within the seas and oceans, Job 38, 16. These are scientific things now known found in recent modern scientific findings, but the Bible talked about it 3,500 years ago. Psalm 8.8, this would be 3,000 years ago. The Bible said this, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. Uh, this gentleman, uh, Matthew Morey, he uh, saw that verse and that intrigued him, the paths of the seas. He was a believer who believed whatever Scripture says, it's in there for a reason. And he thought, huh, I wonder if there are paths in the seas. And so he started studying that, and he found that there are paths in the seas, and it changed modern shipping. And he is now has a monument uh, for his work that says the oceanography pioneer Matthew Morey 1806 to 1873, was led by Psalm 8-8 to chart water currents. As Maury pointed out, the Bible is the authority for everything it touches. 
not just doctrine, but science and history as well. His work revolutionized shipping by drastically cutting travel times. He was led by Scripture. All right, let's move into area number six. This is the biggest one, fulfilled prophecy. Here's an example. 200 years before his birth, the Bible said this, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. God was prophesying that Cyrus, who would be born 200 years later, would have the authority and would make edicts or proclamations to enable the Jewish people to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And Cyrus became Cyrus the Great that we can read about in history books. And sure enough, he was the one that made these proclamations to enable the Jewish people to go back after the Babylonian captivity and begin to rebuild the temple, just as the Bible had prophesied. The destruction of ancient cities. There's many, uh, Babylon, uh, Tyre, Petra, and other places. Let me give you just an example. Let's look at Tyre. Ezekiel chapter 26, verse 4 says, They will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her debris from her and make her a bare rock. Now, there's many other details given that Nebuchadnezzar would be involved. And matter of fact, this kind of threw people for a while because after some of these prophecies, uh, Nebuchadnezzar came along and he destroyed the, the, the mainland part, old Tyre. And, uh, but he, he couldn't get to, there's an island portion of Tyre that's about a half a mile out from the mainland. So he totally destroyed this, and he got frustrated. He couldn't get to this. This was the day no helicopters or planes or anything. And it was a, a great fortress, so he, he never, he just finally had to leave it alone. And so it looked like Scripture was not being fulfilled. The Bible was pretty clear. Uh, they're going to destroy the walls of Tyre, but then he says they're, they'll break down her towers and scrape her debris from her and make her a bare rock. Well, what happened was 200 years later, Alexander the Great came along, and he was more determined. So we're going to get that island fortress. And so he told his guys, he said, I want you to take all this old debris from when Nebuchadnezzar was here a couple hundred years ago. This stuff's still laying around. I want you to throw all that stuff in there, scrape it bare like a rock, and we're going to create a causeway out to the island. And he did, and he conquered it. And we have... You can see an aerial view. This is from 1934. You can see it right here, the causeway that's still there today. And here's a more modern view of it today with things that have now been built upon it in this area where Alexander the Great created this causeway, fulfilling what the Bible said would happen. And then there's prophecies about world empires. Daniel chapter 2 Chapter 7 and chapter 8, if you add all that information together, in essence it says this, there's going to be a number of world empires, the Babylonian world empire, followed by the Medo-Persian empire, followed by the Greek empire. Those three are named in the book of Daniel by name. Then he says the Greek empire will be followed by a fourth world empire, which is not named, but is described as being stronger than all the others. And then it says, in the end of time, there'll be this conglomeration of nations that'll form 
a world empire. So nothing after the Roman Empire of a world empire until the end times when there'll be this conglomeration of nations. And by the way, of the Greek Empire, information is given that the first leader of the Greek Empire will die at an early age and the Greek Empire will be divided into four parts. So let's look at what history shows us has happened. History shows us there was a Babylonian Empire. It was followed by the Medo-Persian Empire. It was followed by the Greek Empire. Those three were named in Scripture. The Greek Empire, its first leader was Alexander the Great. He died in his 30s, and it was divided into four parts. And then it was followed by the Roman Empire, which was stronger than all the first three. And there really hasn't been a world empire. There's been empires, the Byzantine Empire and the Ottoman Empire and that since then, but not really a world empire since the Roman Empire. But today, what do we have? Lots of talk about a new world order, about a conglomeration of nations that will create a world global society. Just like the Bible said, and by the way, it said in that day, Jesus is coming back and establish the kingdom of God forever. Messianic prophecies. We'll talk more about this next week when we talk about Jesus, but there's 300 or more Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ in the writings of the New Testament. Pretty amazing. The regathering of the Jews. This is the one probably of everything I talk about tonight this is the one uh, that I would suggest you tuck in your back pocket and carry with you and always have it available because it's so overwhelming. The Bible, most of these scriptures I'm going to show you are written about 2,500 years ago in the words of the prophets. Prophesied that there'd be one people group who would be scattered to the nations of the world and then in the end times be regathered to their homeland. Let me give you some examples. And I, this is not a complete set of scriptures, but this is some of them. Ezekiel 36, 24, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Isaiah 11, 11 through 12. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Ezekiel 38, 8, after many days you will be summoned. Now this one actually is, is talking to the nations that are going to come against Israel. But notice what he says about this, about Israel being there. After many days you will be summoned in the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered, that's the Jews, from the many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste, but its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. Ezekiel 28, 25, and 26. Thus says the Lord God, when I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered, I will and will manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations. Then they will live in their land which I gave to my servant Jacob. They will live in it securely, and they will build houses, plant vineyards, and live securely when I 
execute judgments upon all who scorn them around, round about them, and then they will know that I am the Lord their God. Now, I want to give you one more because I find this one really interesting. Everybody's seen this verse, right? Many of you, some of you got it on your refrigerator probably, okay? It says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Wonderful promise, isn't it? Ever, is everybody familiar with that promise? Have you ever noticed what the next verse is that really gives you the context? I think it's okay for us to claim it for our lives. That's all right. But let's look at what it's really talking about by reading the next verse. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. That refrigerator verse is to the Jews, that God says, I'm going to bring you back to your homeland. So what's happened in our lifetimes and just before our lifetimes? The Jews started coming back in the late 1800s. A movement began. And then in World War I took place, and something amazing happened. The Ottoman Empire had ruled over ancient Israel and the city of Jerusalem for exactly 400 years. From 1517, that, there is some significance to that, but I won't get into all the details, but exactly 400 years, eight jubilees, I'll tell you that much. And in 1917, the British army overthrew the Ottoman Empire in Israel and Jerusalem and won it back to where it's no longer under Muslim control. And the Balfour Declaration was signed by James Balfour from the British government saying to the Jewish people, we are committed to helping create a homeland for the Jewish people. Now, what a lot of people don't realize is that in, that was followed up in 1920 in Italy when the, after World War I, the United States and France and Great Britain, Japan, and it seems like there was one other, maybe it was Russia, got together to decide what are we going to do with all this land that we have now won. And they divided it up, and it then was voted on in 1922 by the League of Nations to officially state this, and when we hear all this about the dividing of the ancient land of Israel based on 1948, in 1922, all of Israel was given to the Jews. And at the same time, much land around it was given to the Arabs, but all of Israel was given to the Jews, and the League of Nations voted on it, and the nations of the world declared this will be the Jewish homeland, and they kept coming back. And then World War II happened, and the Holocaust and the horrors of that. But right after that, the newly formed United Nations again confirmed, only this time they did draw different lines, but they said this will be a place for Jews to come home. And in 1948, on May 14th, they became a nation. In 1948, the Jewish population was about three-quarters of a million in Israel. Today, it's over six and a half million. They're coming from all over the world. And of course, then they're having babies there too. 
But let me give you an example. 1989, President Reagan famously said, and you can help me finish the statement, he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And to the world's amazement, he did. I remember seeing young men over in East Germany with sledgehammers beating hunks out of that wall, and people were celebrating, and the whole world was in awe. Are you kidding? The Soviet Union has fallen. What the world didn't know is what was really behind that, a God who keeps his word. Because over, five, over the next five years or so, about a million Jews who were stuck behind the Iron Curtain left and moved back to Israel. Today, most of them are coming from the United States and Europe. But they've come from all over the world at different seasons, a lot coming from France right now because of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism's on the rise in the United States, and more and more, by the way, just recently, in recent years, the Jewish population in Israel is now the most in all the world, more than in the United States for the first time in many, many years and they continue to come back, fulfilling what the Bible said would happen. The Bible not only said they'd come back, but he said, and for sake of time, I'm just going to tell you in essence, what this says is, he said, I'm going to bless the land too. The land's going to flourish, and it's going to do really well. The mountains of Israel are going to come alive again, and, and there's going to be fruit, and there's going to be produce. And Mark Mark Twain in 1867, as he went around the world and wrote in his, his diary-type book, he wrote of this land. He said, it's a hopeless, dreary, heartbroken land, a silent, mournful expanse. But since then, more than 400 million trees have been planted. Rains have returned. World-class irrigation systems have been put in place. It's now a fruit-exporting nation a leader in technology. Tel Aviv is the second leading place in all the world for technology, only behind the Silicon Valley. Also, they found massive amounts of natural gas in the Mediterranean Sea right off, off the coast of Israel. And they've also, if I had more time, I would take you through a whole set of scriptures out of Deuteronomy and Genesis where God amazingly maps out in scripture where they will find oil in Israel, and there is a United States oil company called Zion Oil who's in Israel drilling for oil in the area they've been led to by the Bible, and they've already discovered they can't get to it yet. It's so deep, but they've found there's massive amounts of oil in Israel. God has caused the whole land to blossom, just like he said 2,500 years ago. Bible is amazing. He said, can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travails, she also brought forth her sons. You know, can a, in a day, can they become a nation again? And then May 14th, 1948, it happened all of a sudden. I want to just, I'm going to try to, just give me a couple more minutes here to close out a couple things about Israel. This, this basically talks, we actually read this verse a while ago, that he's going to execute judgment upon those around them that try to do harm to them. What's happened since 1948? This map shows you, if you can see the little green spot, that's Israel. 
All the other nations listed on this map are their enemies that don't like them. They out, uh, outdo them landmass-wise by 600. They got 640 times as much land and 65 times more population. And yet, there's been six wars since 1947, and Israel's won every one of them, including a war that they won. The, May 14th, they became a nation. They got attacked on May 15th. They had, at that point, they didn't have any planes, uh, or wait, nine obsolete planes, 60,000 trained soldiers, but only 18,900 of them were mobilized. Oh, they didn't have a single cannon or tank. And they get bombarded from all around them, all these, com these armies of different nations, and they won. They won again in 1967. They won again in the Yom Kippur War in 1973. They won again in the 1980s. They've been attacked numerous times. This video series, Against All Odds, chronicles the miracles. I mean, out-out miracles that have happened in some of these. One that I, keep, uh, that I always remember, these Jewish soldiers come to the, this field in the, a dark night, and they, they find out they, they, they've got people coming from behind them. They're going to kill them if they can get to them. They've got to get across this field, but it's covered with landmines. It's a field of sand, and there's land, they, they discover right away there's landmines there, so they have to stop, and they're going to start just trying to crawl across and, and feel with their hands, and it's going to take them forever. And all of a sudden, in the middle of a beautiful moonlit night, this wind comes up like a 50-mile-an-hour wind that starts blowing across the field, blows, they're having to cover their eyes and everything, blows all this sand across, and then it, the moon comes back to, in sight, the wind dies down, and they look out, and every landmine is visible in front of them. They walk across. God has done miraculous things for his people. He says that they're the apple of his eye, and he's protecting them against all those who would try to destroy them. He's restored the Hebrew language, just like the Bible said would happen. It's was dead. There's no other language ever been dead for hundreds and hundreds of years and then been revived. It's now the national language of Israel. Next week we'll get into, I can't wait to show you about Jerusalem and what the Bible said about that. We'll also talk about 666 and other end time prophecies. We'll close this out and then we'll end the, 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 our whole time together. We're going to move into talking about the person of Jesus that he's a historical person, that he is God, that he is the Messiah, that he truly bodily rose from the dead. We'll look at evidences that confirm those things. Isn't the Bible great? Isn't God great? Lord, help us to hide these things in our heart, to realize your word is amazing, and you've given it to us as special revelation to reveal your purposes and plans. Let us be instruments in your hands to help others understand the truth of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. We'll see you. If you want to come by the table, come out and see me. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.